This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, here we are coming to the the culmination of our Lenten journey, about to enter into Holy Week. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been digging into the pillars of our Lenten observance, a prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So we're, today we're, we're going to talk specifically about fasting, but as with all of the pillars, they are interdependent upon one another. So I really encourage you to go back and look at those other episodes on, on prayer and almsgiving over the last couple of weeks. You can find those archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. I encourage you to take a look at it. Today, we're going to be talking with Father Daniel Dozier, who's the pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington, an adjunct professor of sacred scripture at Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril and Methodius. He's appeared on Catholic Answers and many other places. He's one of the founders and hosts of Becoming Byzantine, which is a a half webinar, half course to go through, maybe one part podcast as well that you can locate. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And is also uh, the Director of Programs and Learning for the Center for In-Ministry Development. That's a mouthful. Father, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's it's my honor and, and glory to Jesus Christ. That's our that's our typical greeting uh, to uh, to everyone, and certainly in this season we we want to emphasize that. <laughs> yeah. So, th- uh, to my great shame, I'm going to say that the show's been on the air for seven years. You are the very first uh, Byzantine, or really I- any of the Eastern churches of the Catholic Church, to come on and join me on air. So, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you. What an what an honor to be able to do that. So this this is great. So let's start there, uh, because many people don't know that the, when we say the Catholic Church, we are not just talking about the Latin Catholic Church. What we think right. of often terms as uh, as Roman Catholic, as the term was given to us and then eventually adopted, but right. there is a whole range of Catholicism uh, mm-hmm. that is in in union with the Pope, but has different patrimony and different even liturgy than what we are most familiar with if we were to go and visit um, Italy or visit uh, a church in in Mexico or Canada where all the liturgies we would expect to be the same. If you were to walk into a a Byzantine Catholic church or a a Melkite church or any of these other of the Eastern churches, you would experience a, a, a different lectionary, a different liturgy and a different expression of this same one holy and Catholic and apostolic church. So help us understand the relationship of of the Eastern churches, and and particularly the Byzantine church, which you're a part of, to the Roman church, and then we'll move from there into our topic today of fasting. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of share this. I I think for a lot of uh, folks in the West, it's, it's very often a surprise to think about the Catholic Church as a church of churches. Uh, we're, we're used to the emphasis on the unity of Christ's church, which is certainly appropriate. As you say, Christ came to found one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and he did it on the foundation of the apostles. But what's, what's interesting about that, when we think about the church and how it developed in history, Christ comes to establish his church, but then after he sends the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, uh, we hear in, uh, in in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 
that the faithful, after the ascent of the Holy Spirit, they abided in the apostles' teaching, in the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and in the fellowship or the koinonia or the communion of the apostles. So apostolic teaching, apostolic worship, apostolic communion, all of that became really the definitive markers of what it meant to be uh, truly Catholic, truly Catholic Christian. But those apostles just didn't stay in Jerusalem. They were sent out all over the world, right? So they're spreading out through Asia Minor and Europe and India, even with St. Thomas. And, you know, you can see how this great dispersion takes place. And so they go and and they spread the gospel in uh, beginning with the uh, Jewish communities of the diaspora. So those outside of Jerusalem, so Antioch and, and Alexandria and, and so forth, and as in Rome even. Um, and as these communities take root, as, or as the gospel takes root in these, in these communities, uh, they also begin to uh, welcome Gentile Christians into their midst because the gospel was meant to be universal. It was to universalize Israel's vocation, its covenant vocation to worship and, and serve and know the one true God. So now these, these Gentiles are bringing their own artistic, linguistic, uh, philosophical, cultural genius to bear on how the church expresses that one apostolic faith, worship, and, and communion with the leadership of the apostles. And so you have differences that emerge, especially in spirituality, in liturgy, in even church law, uh, and in, in some expressions of theology as well. Those churches that get planted there themselves found other churches. And so you end up with this development that you have a number of groupings of churches that sort of reflect a common familial patrimony of apostolic faith rooted in a particular culture. And they their ritual expressions this is why we sometimes call uh, we refer to rites of the church, R-I-T-E-S. Uh, the, the, this ritual expression that becomes the patrimony of that church really begins to define them, especially as a church within the communion of churches. So in the Catholic church, uh, there are essentially six ritual traditions, uh, Byzantine, Maronite, Chaldean, Armenian, uh, Latin, or Roman, uh, and uh, I'm missing one there. Uh, I want to say uh, Coptic or Alexandrian, I think is what, I, what I'm missing. Um, and, and of those rites, they have a number of churches that use those rites. So I don't belong to a rite per se. I belong to a church, an Eastern, Eastern Catholic church. But that church is in communion, not just with the Roman Catholic church and the Pope of Rome, but with all the other Eastern churches that uh, together form this communion. And I, I'll conclude with it just with the best analogy I've ever heard. It comes from Archbishop Joseph Raya in his book, The Face of God. He says, the Catholic Church is very much like a mosaic icon. So if you think about a mosaic icon that has all these individual pieces, each piece, each shape is unique in color, form, material, and it's beautiful on its own. But it's only when it's brought together that it reveals the face of Christ to the world. So the Catholic Church as a mosaic icon, a beautiful icon of beautiful pieces, individual pieces together in that communion reveal the one face of Christ as the one true church of Christ. So that's, I guess, probably the best way, the shortest, hopefully uh, the shortest explanation I could give uh, to explain how we are all uh, one Catholic church and yet at the same time, individual Catholic churches. Well, and I, I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe it was uh, St. Pope John Paul II who said that we need to be able to breathe 
as a church to breathe with both lungs, the lungs of the, the East, the Eastern churches, mm-hmm. and the lungs of, the lung of the West church. And so in saying that, uh, I understand him to be saying that there are things that we need to learn from one another and things from each of these lungs that help sustain the whole. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And, and you know, the one of the things I would just note is... Um, uh, when we talk about the Catholic East, we could actually say the Catholic Easts as in plural, uh, because there's so many different traditions that emerged. Uh, you know, you have kind of the three major streams of the, of the Greek and the Syrian and the Armenian uh, traditions, and they all have their own sort of diversity of expression of that one faith. So, so it's, it's a wonderful thing. I, so I have people who are Roman Catholic, who are Latin Catholic, who come to visit my church. And I tell them, I said, look, it's wonderful to have you here. When you go back to your Roman church, when you go back to your Latin church, you're going to experience the mass in an entirely different way. Because what this serves to do is to sort of reframe their experience of the Eucharist and an expression of the church, because now all of a sudden they're seeing it in a new light. And that's part of what I think is the apostolate of the Eastern churches in within the West uh, and in communion with the West is to really help broaden our horizons as far as what Catholicity really, uh, really means. So it's that breathing with both lungs that I think really gives us the energy and the oxygen we need for our spiritual lives. Without creating too much controversy, would you also maybe highlight the differences between the Eastern Catholic churches and mm-hmm. the larger Eastern church that we often see and, and lately have seen quite a bit in the news as well? You mean the, the Orthodox uh, Orthodox churches yes. or the yes? So, well, so our our churches um, really celebrate and live uh, in terms of our theological, for the most part, our legal. Although there's some differences there, uh, spiritual and liturgical traditions, the traditions of Orthodoxy. Uh, Patriarch Sviatoslav, who is the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, basically said our tradition is Orthodox. And, uh, and right now you've got sort of this, this very um, tragic and yet at the same time, somehow grace-bearing providential uh, communion am- among the Ukrainian Catholic and Orthodox churches, really celebrating that common patrimony of faith as they suffer through this, this time. Um, and it's, uh, it, it demonstrates the unity that's really at the heart of our, um, of, of our common life. And we have great relationships with many Orthodox churches. Uh, our churches, our Orthodox churches that entered into communion with Rome during a specific historic period. And so we really do strive to live out our, our, our true faith, our true worship, which is what Orthodoxy means, um, and in communion with the Catholic Church, specifically also the uh, communion with the Church of Rome. So differences that exist, usually they relate to uh, questions that, uh, historic questions that have been at, at times uh, been treated with more of a spirit of polemicism than irenicism. And I, mm-hmm. I think the best way I could characterize uh, the Eastern Catholic Church is that we really do strive to be uh, irenically orthodox, that we're, we're really trying to, to abide in communion with East and West together um, and, and not to engage in some of the polemical uh, aspects of the tradition, because let's face it, we all inherited a history none of us created. So we have to work with that history, but we have a future that's ahead of us. So how do we how do we work that forward? And and the best way to do it is charity and and truth. 
Um, and so we're, I think we're making efforts towards that. Right now, this conflict, I think, is, uh, it's, a, it's, a tra it's tragic on so many levels. I think it, it has revealed a fissure with, uh, that was already there, but I think has now been exacerbated to a level uh, within the Orthodox communion of churches, especially between Moscow and the churches that are, are uh, more affiliated with Constantinople. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, it's something to pray to pray through, pray for, uh, pray for an end to the conflict, to the war. Um, but, uh, but, but mainly, I think you know God's providence has a way of bringing good out, of, even out of great evil. So that's that's what we can hope for uh, after this is done. Yeah, we're talking today with Father Daniel Dozier, who's the pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington. So we're talking about breathing through both lungs and recognizing and being being informed as uh, as. Roman Catholics as the Latin Church by the things that the Eastern Church does and does well. And I would have to say that if you were to look at the Lenten fast, it would seem that the Eastern Church is maybe a little bit more rigorous uh, in the fast than sometimes we tend to be in the West. Of course, the Western fast also used to be fairly strenuous, but over the years, in a, I think, my own personal opinion, in an effort to be pastoral to those who who have difficulty, they made allowances that the rest of us maybe took for granted and just said, hey, look, the church doesn't require as much anymore. Um, that the, the Eastern Church still sets a beautiful example of what it means uh, to, to enter into this penitential season of Lent. So share with us a little bit about the the principles of fasting from the Eastern perspective, and then we'll get in maybe to some pragmatics as well. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's it's a great question. I always appreciate answering some of the the differences um, sometimes that exist. I I would say this one of the one of the major differences. Well, first of all, for us, fasting we, we refer to fasting periods, uh, and so fasting in one sense is a broad category of of practice that is more than just the abstinence from certain food types uh, or, or quantities of food. It, it really is about uh, a period of entering into uh, the, the mystery of the passion of Christ uh, and in that, in that spirit of, of the passion of Christ throughout really four periods or four seasons. So uh, the, the great fast is what we're in right now, what, what actually we're concluding tomorrow. Uh, so the, the great fast is this time of the traditional Lenten fast before Holy Week, uh, and uh, before we enter into the Paschal mystery of what we call Pascha, which is the resurrection of Christ, also known as Easter. That's the major fast. That's the one that everybody knows. But we also have a fasting period before the Feast of the Apostles Peter and Paul. And so two weeks prior to the Feast of, of the Apostles or of, of Peter and Paul, uh, the twin martyrs of Rome, uh, at the end of June, we have two weeks also of fasting. Uh, before what we call the Dormition Fast, which is the, um, or before the Feast of Dormition, which is August 15th in the, in the new calendar, uh, the West celebrates it as the Assumption. We celebrate it as the falling asleep of the Mother of God in death. And afterwards, she was, of course, assumed body and soul into heaven and enthroned uh, there as the Queen Mother. Uh, but that fast is also one that begins August 1st with a procession of the cross uh, around the church and it used to be around the city of Constantinople. And then we have two weeks of fasting there to prepare for the celebration of the holy death uh, of the mother of God. And then finally, the nativity fast. 
uh, which begins uh, November 14th. It's also called St. Philip's Fast because that's when it begins. That's a period of fasting leading up to uh, nativity. And of course, our nativity uh, is really crowned by theophany, which is the baptism of the Lord in the Jordan. So we have extensive periods of fasting within our tradition. And those fasting practices uh, include really a, a couple of things, a couple of key things. First, it's an a time to increase our prayer. You know, it's a time when we, uh, we come before the Lord and we enter into his presence. And so, uh, you know, we, we want to enter into the glory of the Lord. And, and so we engage uh, not only in additional prayer services individually and, then, and also in common, but we also deny ourselves certain foods. Uh, you know, to kind of cleanse our, our heart and mind, like Moses going up to the mountain or Jesus entering into the desert or, you know, any of the number of different witnesses that time of fasting uh, to, to prepare us to enter into the and fully receive the glory of the Lord uh, for a particular feast. Um, we also, um, you know, in, in that act of, of self-denial uh, through fasting, we also engage very positively in, in the corporal, corporal and spiritual works of mercy, which we call almsgiving. Uh, so we have, you know, the increase in prayer, we have increase in, uh, you know, disciplines around our, our, our eating habits and our food, uh, and what we're, what we're trying to do, deny ourselves some food, deny ourselves material food to prepare for the spiritual food, and then also uh, that, that time of, the, of gain, engaging in the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. And then finally, it's a time of repentance. It's a time to reflect on our sins, anything that might draw us away. Uh, from the glory of the Lord and our participation in that glory, and uh, to, to reorient our whole life uh, back to Christ. So all fasting periods contain those four elements, although there are particular disciplines around, around each one depending upon the season. So I don't know if that's kind of a helpful summary of, of the, the, the way we think about fasting more generally as a season, uh, it, it, rather than just maybe the abstinence from certain foods. So as I like to think about it, looking at these these three pillars of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, I look mm -hmm. at them in the sense uh, of how we relate to the world. So uh, prayer, of course, is tending to our relationship with God. Uh, right. Almsgiving is tending to our relationship to the common good and to those who are around us, those to whom we belong. And right. fasting, in some sense, I see as tending to our relationship to ourself, of self-mastery and of of denying ourselves the things our appetites say that we want in order to cultivate the appetite for the divine, uh, which is ultimately what will sustain us longer. Um, does that fit, does that kind of resonate or fit in the same kind of framework or is there maybe a oh. different perspective? No, absolutely. I think the, the, the denial of of food, you know, if we if we look at this too from the perspective of Scripture, of course, we fell through through eating, <laughs> eating and disobedience, right? You know, the uh, and and you can you can kind of follow along in salvation history, and you see this this repetition of of this fall uh, through through the passions. So so in the Byzantine East, especially, we emphasize the role that the passions play. Now, the passions don't refer to feelings per se. But it's it's sort of that manifest inclination towards um, towards you know anti glory. If <laughs> probably there was a there's a way to put it towards anti glory towards immediacy. Towards that, yeah, it's something that where we're not really reflecting the image and likeness of God the way we should, 
in entering into the, the glory of God in worship. And so sin is what inhibits that fully. Uh, and, so, and so when we give into those passions, uh, those passions are, it's, a, it's an inclination towards, uh, towards sin. So, so how do we fight it? Well, we, we fight it by first and foremost, uniting our passions uh, and our, those inclinations to the passion of Christ, to his free, uh, free will suffering and offering on the Holy Cross. And uh, it's through that that our passions are cleansed, that they're purified, that they're properly um, not just contained, but directed. Uh, you know, all, all these inclinations that we have are, in one sense, God-given, but they're disfigured and distorted uh, through the ancestral fall. And as a result, they, they become idolatrous. You know, so, so, so if we look at it this way, if we think about what it means to be in the image and likeness of God, we, we could think about it like uh, an icon panel, right? You've got a four-sided icon panel, like the one you have of the, of the Our Lady of the New Advent icon, that beautiful one behind you. So, so there are four sides to that panel, and there are four dimensions of being in the image and likeness of God. If we look at, for instance, the, the, the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, there is the royal dimension, man is given dominion over the earth, right? We become vice regents with God. You know, we are co-reigning with God uh, as the image of, and likeness of God. We also are like priests. So we're royal. There's a priestly dimension of our life where we're offering to God the good things of creation, right? God gives us these things. He condescends to give us these great gifts. And so we offer them back to God, uh, the, the fruits of our labor, the fruits of the land, uh, this is this is a priestly act. So you know, God commands Adam to till and to keep the garden, which is priestly language regarding you know the, the service of and ministry of priests in the, in the tabernacle. Then there is the prophetic dimension, right? So royal, priestly, prophetic. The prophetic dimension, what is that about? That's about that's about wisdom. Uh, that's about the truth of God. That's about uh, the the discerning uh, the purpose of things. You know, Adam naming the animals was was really a way of him discerning the uh, the inner logi, the you know God's impression of His word upon all created beings, so that it would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's the prophetic dimension, and then the familial dimension, right? That's for you know our relationship with one another, our, our spousal uh, parenting and children, and filial relationships and familiar. All those dimensions. At the at the fall of Adam and Eve, what happens? Those dimensions of the image and likeness of God, we lose the likeness. You know, we, we, the likeness, in, in a sense, departs because that glory departs. We lose the robe of glory, and we now are, 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 we are naked uh, with shame. Uh, but the image of God remains, but it's disfigured. It's distorted. It's like a warped board, right? And so the royal dimension becomes disfigured through the idolatry of power. The priestly dimension becomes disfigured uh, through the idolatry of wealth. Uh, through the idolatry of possession to become consumers rather than uh, thinking about offering to God the things he's given us. We, we want to hold on to them, consume them, you know, uh, that the prophetic dimension becomes disfigured by pride. Instead of wisdom, we become very prideful. And the familial dimension becomes disfigured by the idolatry of lust. And so all those four dimensions in that disfigurement are in need of radical healing. Uh, and so God uses the law as sort of like a vice grip on the sides of the board to sort of straighten it out, but to prepare it for something greater that's to come. And that, that is the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation. 
And in the incarnation, the image of that board is, is reformed, you know, straightened out uh, through the preparation of the vice grips of the law, you know, the ceremonial, the civil law, the, all those different aspects of the law, the familial law, to prepare the way for the coming of Christ so that we, the image of Christ can then be rewritten on that board uh, of ours. And, and so through, you know, faith, hope, uh, and uh, charity and humility. So those virtues that we practice in concert with fasting, right? Fasting corresponds to that priestly uh, offering of God, you know, offering our food and prayer, uh, the work, corporal and spiritual works of mercy corresponding to the royal dimension. Uh, you know, it, the, the, uh, the, so we have the almsgiving, the corporal works of mercy, the prayer, the fasting, all these things heal that image and continue to heal as we grow in grace. So, so I root all, in my own mind, in my own thinking about our fasting period, I really see it as a way of bringing that likeness back and healing the image and bringing that likeness back so that we can truly reflect uh, Christ and our passions become moments of sanctification because now they're reoriented properly towards, towards the likeness of God. So long-winded way to say, I, I think it's all, it's, I think it's really all connected uh, to God's plan for our participation in glory. I was just going to say that'll preach, right? That yeah. <laughs> if you've if you've not given that as a homily, that's that's one to come up with. I, you know, yeah. I, I look at these practices during the this period of fasting, yeah. and I see it as um, an, a, a cooperation with the Spirit. Like we're taking effort. We're yes, we're entering into effort, but we're doing so by the grace of God to right. say. Let me, in one in one sense, let me deny these things so as to recognize the deformity. Right? If I if I suppress food and I recognize that I am actually controlled by it and it's controlling me, then I can see. Oh, this is something that needs to be turned over. If I do almsgiving and I recognize that I'm being stingy or it causes me anxiety, then I can see right. that that's something that's that's deformed and out of that that image. And likewise, too, with prayer, if I go to pray and I say, I'm going to set aside an extra five minutes to pray and I can't do it because of something internal to me, right. I can say something is out of line here. And so through recognizing the deformity of those passions, mm -hmm. I can make that more... Um, determined offering and say, okay, God, you have to enter into this because right. I see my own falling short of that image that I'm supposed to be portraying. So we allow room for the Holy Spirit to come in and make those differences. We also come in and we say, all right, well, uh, Holy Spirit, come and do this, but I also want to make some positive steps towards growing in virtue to exercise those muscles so that right. I can look a little bit more like that image of God. We're talking today with Father Daniel Dozier, pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington, talking about the Lenten fast and how we fast. Father, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls share with us about your practice of fasting this year. How's it going? Uh, what spiritual benefit have you received from it? What have you heard from God in, in your prayer time through this fast and don't go anywhere because the conversation continues right after this. You're listening to outside the walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Father Daniel Dozier. He's a pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia, Washington, just down the road a bit from me. Uh, adjunct professor of sacred scripture at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril and Methodius, and many more things. One of those projects is uh, the Becoming Byzantine webinar slash podcast slash course. We've got a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. It's well worth your time. Go take a peek. Father, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. This is great. So we're talking about fasting. Um, I work with people from a number of different traditions, uh, including one of one of my bosses is uh, Greek Orthodox. And so mm-hmm. here in this season of Lent, one of the things that has become very obvious, and I knew it intellectually, but it, it's more on display, is that the way that we fast in the West is different than the rest of the church. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that because when we think of fasting, the Lenten fast, we think of, okay, well, I'm going to give up something. Maybe it's uh, extra dessert. Maybe it's something non-food related. And then I'm obliged to abstain from meat on Fridays. And then on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday, I'm supposed to have one meal and two smaller snacks that together don't equal one meal. And that's my fast. But right. but the person that I work with, it's like full on one day every once in a while comes around. He's like, oh, boy, I get to have fish today. Yes. Uh, yes. Because most of the time it's a full on fast, not only no meat, but no cheeses, no uh, any kind of animal product, including eggs or whatever else. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's a different level of fasting. So. A couple of things. One, what can we learn from the Byzantine, from the Orthodox way of fasting? Uh, what do you have to offer us? And maybe if you have some time, explain the difference. Why are the fasts different, if you know? I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's a, great, uh, a great list of questions there. I, so, so in our tradition, um, we really kind of have two traditions of fasting, most especially, I would say, on the Eastern Catholic side. Um, first, first of all, in, in reference to the fast, we, we don't emphasize so much the law of fasting, although we do have minimum requirements. Mm-hmm. The, the spirit of the fast is meant to be a generous spirit and is meant to be one of hiddenness. So, so one of the Sundays of the great fast is the Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt. Maybe you're familiar with her story. Uh, and uh, St. Zosimus, who is this priest who belongs to a, a monastery in Palestine and their practice as a monastery, it's very, and this is very Byzantine in terms of the attitudes around it, uh, is to at the, at the end of what's called forgiveness Vespers. So the forgiveness Vespers takes place on cheese fair Sunday. So maybe that's a good place to start. We have two, we have multiple Sundays leading up to the great fast, five Sundays, actually. The last two, one is called meat fair and the other is called cheese fair. Meat Fair Sunday is also called the Sunday of the Last Judgment because that's the the gospel read from Matthew. Uh, That's where we are preparing to say farewell to the meat. And then the following Sunday is Cheese Fair Sunday. So guess what we're saying goodbye to at that point? You know, it's the dairy products, right? That's the traditional fast, those two Sundays. So there's a gradual preparation for entry fully into the great fast through Meat Fair and Cheese Fair Sunday. Cheese Fair Sunday is also called Forgiveness Sunday, and it's where we exchange mutual forgiveness in a, in a Vesper service 
you know, where, you know, pray for me and forgive me a sinner. You know, may God forgive you. Pray for me and forgive me a sinner. This exchange of mutual, it's a very beautiful, right? It goes, it's an ancient one that goes back to Jerusalem, actually. Uh, and so we conclude there. Now, St. Zosimus, at the end of Forgiveness Vespers, they would take like a loaf of bread, maybe some grapes or something like that. And then they would go away from the monastery. They would leave the monastery, go into the desert for the full fast so that no brother would look at one another and say, oh, look at that. He had an extra grape. <laughs> today. You know, so there's none of this. It's all like, okay, I'm going to go be with the Lord. And then they would come back together uh, for, uh, for Palm Sunday. Uh, and, and so that, that spirit of fasting, you know, and it goes along with what Jesus teaches about the hidden nature of fasting and uh, not disfiguring our face, but cleaning our face and, and being ready to enter into the fast because the father who sees in secret is going to reward you for your, for your secret fasting. But that being said, the church as part of her common life has these sort of disciplines that she emphasizes both in the West and the East. Now we do have some minimum requirements and that we that we ask people to observe, and I'll I'll tell you to tell you what those are in a second. Two types of fasting. There is what's called the strict fast. Sometimes it's called the monastic fast, and very likely your Greek Orthodox boss uh, follows these. The strict fast, it's no meat, fish, or animal products, no dairy, and no alcohol, pretty much throughout the whole of of Great Lent. You know, so it's it's very extensive. So. Peanut butter becomes your best friend, uh, you know, vegetables, nuts, fruits, you know, the, the goal is that you're denying yourself anything associated with, with an animal, uh, an animal product. Now you could probably say, um, and I could venture to guess that part of the reason for that is, uh, you know, animals were often associated with idolatrous practices um, and offering of sacrifices in the meat markets, you know, Back in the day and and the ancient world, you know, meat markets uh, were closely associated with temples where animals were sacrificed to the to the to the deities to the to the gods of the of the people. And so it wouldn't be uh, you know probably too far fetched to say, well, you know, by giving up meat, um, you know, it's a it's a way of sort of symbolically rejecting uh, some of the idolatry. It, it's, it's potential to say that. Plus, it also uh, speaks to sort of a, an, an Edenic sort of existence where, you know, we weren't eating meat in the Garden of Eden. We were eating the, the fruits of what God had provided in the land. And so uh, no animal byproducts, but just, uh, you know, just eating from the, 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 you know, like I say, the fruits of the trees, the, the garden and so forth. Um, so, so there are certain things that point back to that potentially in, in terms of symbolism. Um, that, that's called a strict fast. Also a monastic fast. A lot of it is, is certainly practiced in monasteries, and they have other disciplines, like, for instance, the reading of the, uh, the Ladder of Divine Ascent and a number of other things, practices that go on with that. Um, then there's what I like to call the, uh, the, the slim fast, right? So the, there's the strict <laughs> fast, and then there's the slim fast. So the slim fast really is strict fast on clean Monday. So our great fast begins at the end, the conclusion of forgiveness vespers on Sunday. And what would be the week in the new calendar for Ash Wednesday, we actually begin the evening. Our liturgical days are, you know, evening to evening, sundown to sundown. So, so that strict fast, would, or excuse me, that, that fast um, for clean Monday would be a strict fast. So we would have no meat, uh, fish or animal products, uh, no dairy, 
no alcohol for that day of strict fast. For that's, that's what we call clean Monday. Uh, so that clean week is that first week of the great fast. Then we also have the same strict fast on uh, uh, Holy and Great Friday or Great and Holy Friday, depending upon where, which is basically Good Friday in the Western mm -hmm. tradition. So those are the, that's the beginning and essentially you could say towards the end of oh, the, the Holy Week, uh, Great Fast is technically ended. It's, it's the uh, Good Friday. Mm -hmm. Then on Wednesdays and Fridays, no meat. Um, so throughout the Great Fast. And that's a very traditional fast in, in the early church. Uh, it's referenced in the Didache where the Jews would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So the Christians said, we're going to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And there was obvious significance, especially for Friday. Um, and so, and so it's, it's regarded as a, a minimum fast uh, to at least, you know, participate in the, in the true spirit of that. Now, in our other fasting periods, there are not the re requirements, uh, but, but it's pretty much the same practice. Uh, but, uh, but it's not, you know, you don't have those minimal requirements. Uh, it's, it's voluntary. So where I would make a distinction, and I think between Eastern and Western fast, it's not just in the nature of the fast. Ours is much more of a, a qualitative fast than a quantitative fast. So we, we fast differently in that regard. I think it's also more of an emphasis on, on that this is just the beginning of what we can be doing. Um, so if there is a focus on sort of like what the law requires, am I fulfilling the law? Um, then I don't think we're fully entering into the spirit, the spirit of the fast, yeah. that, that generosity of spirit to, as you point out, allow the Holy Spirit to lead us uh, to perhaps discover those passions, because we can fast and hide truly from the true fast, which, which Christism says is a fast from sin. Mm -hmm. You know, we can be, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not eating M&Ms. You know, I'm not, you know, I've, I've got my two meals and they don't equal one meal. Well, but, but yeah, but I'm eating my brother uh, by, by destroying his good name. Uh, you know, these are all things that we have to really think about. Uh, so, I, so I think the real spirit of the fast is one that's far more generous than what the minimal requirements are. But I don't think we need to be scrupulous about that. I think yeah. we just allow the spirit to guide us. So It seems in a lot of ways, and maybe this is the same also in the Eastern churches, uh, it seems that the the fast in the Western Church very often is is individualized, right? So I'm going to take on these specific practices, and then I'm going to take on something extra that is unique to me, even if I uh, consult with a few people to figure out what that is. Um, yeah. Do you find the fast in the in the Eastern Church to be the same, or do you find it to be more of a corporate fast? Is there a corporate sense where uh, we are all in this together. Although, as you mentioned with the monks who went off and hid from one another, it, that wouldn't be necessarily all that corporate. But we do, don't dismiss the church for, <laughs> for 20 or 30 days. Yeah, yeah. Do you find there to be a more uh, corporate cohesion to the fast in the Eastern Church? Yeah, there, there, there is, uh, especially because we try to maintain some of the fasting foods for Sundays. Uh, you know, so people are working hard and and I'm also, as I go and do some pastoral visits, people are preparing fasting foods and it's, you know, it's, it's uh, exchanging recipes. There's always this sort of fun thing. There's lots of great Eastern cookbooks that you can, that you can find. Uh, so there, 
there there is an element of joy to it. It's kind of interesting um, and uh, and camaraderie as as we work together uh, to to find ways to fast and 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 to keep the fast. But the one thing I would say is, uh, and this is where those other dimensions of fasting come into play. We increase our prayer life. Uh, we have a number of services that go on. We have Akathis services, which are those standing services of prayer, especially to the Mother of God and the saints. We have the Canon of St. Andrew, which is this, this exposition of um, God's mercy and our need for repentance as we are in exile from the garden and returning to paradise. And it's, it's you know, like an hour and a half long, beautiful Canon, beautiful prayers. Uh, we have the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts. We don't celebrate the divine liturgy during the week. Uh, we, we, we consecrate what are called lambs, or the, the, the square uh, bread. We, have, we use leavened bread for our Eucharist, and we, we put some of the precious blood on them, and we put them in what's called an artiforion, which is a box on the, on the holy table. And then we bring them out and have this beautiful communion service, vesperal communion service that was actually written by St. Gregory the Great. Um, and, uh, and so we, we do that. Uh, during the week. So we don't celebrate the divine liturgy during the week. And, uh, and so we, you know, we have all these special services and prayers that are filling us. So even as we empty our bellies, uh, we're filling our hearts with prayer. And, and that's where that spirit of God and, you know, the joy of coming together and praying, um, you know, sometimes we engage in common apostolates together and works of mercy, uh, you know, certainly increasing confession times. And then here's the kicker. Here's the beauty of it. We anoint with oil hmm. throughout the fast. So, so we do uh, what would be in the West called a sacramental anointing, not the holy anointing, but, but a sacramental anointing to strengthen in the spirit, in the spirit of God. You know, the oil is, is symbolic of strengthening the body. Now it strengthens the soul through the blessing of the priest. And so we, we do this anointing. I do it after every uh, Sunday uh, uh, Divine Liturgy. And, and then on the Wednesday of Holy Week, we actually do give the holy anointing to all of the faithful. So regardless of where they are for the healing of soul and body. So here they've come through the fast. You know, they're probably struggling. They've wrestled with the passions. They've gone to confession. Now they're going to be strengthened in whole, in, in, through the holy anointing. So that is a practice that's unique to the the Byzantine East, where we actually give the holy anointing to all of our congregation uh, on the Wednesday of Holy Week uh, in preparation for Pascha. So, so all these things are meant to balance each other out. So it's not just the self-denial, it's also what am I filling myself with? And it's a lot of prayer, uh, and, and that I think leads to true spiritual joy. All right, so as you've been talking, it, it is a beautiful picture, and I'm sure you've got some people whose interest is piqued. So if someone were going to find the local uh, Eastern Church, uh, Eastern Catholic Church in their area, are there like three tips in the last couple of minutes we have for yeah. how to visit a uh, an Eastern Catholic Church as a Latin Catholic? Boy, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that is a great question. Uh, so, well, first of all, let me recommend a couple things. One, uh, if you go to godwithusonline.com, uh, that is an apostolate of the Eastern Catholic bishops, and we offer all sorts of videos and explanations. And I think there are also links to our churches there. Uh, there are many jurisdictions, Eastern Catholic jurisdictions, not just Byzantine. There's Maronite. There's a large 
growing, God bless them, Chaldean population. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of different Eastern Catholic churches here, and you can learn about our traditions through the lessons there, but also I think you can find some of the churches there as well. Um, I also would recommend, uh, uh, I, I wrote a book for Catholic Answers, I don't mean to shill for my own book, but I, I wrote a book for Catholic <laughs> Answers called 20 Answers on Eastern Catholicism, and I provide some tips there as well as some websites uh, that you can go to that I think will be helpful uh, to people uh, so that they're able to uh, understand, like, if I go to an Eastern liturgy, I, what's the protocol, you know? Yeah. Um, we also produced a video at our Becoming Byzantine YouTube channel that's uh, called How to Attend a Divine Liturgy for the First Time. And if you go to our, our Byz Becoming Byzantine YouTube channel, you will see that video that explains and answers a lot of these questions that people have, like, you know, they don't want to be uh, rude or they don't want to be embarrassed, <laughs> you know, what do I do? We we try to answer those uh, in that video. So those those would be some resources I would I would highly recommend. We're going to put links to that over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. We've been talking today with Father Daniel Dozier, pastor of St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Olympia. If you're in that neck of the woods, stop in and say hello. Father, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my honor, and thank you so much, Dale. This was this is a lot of fun. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Dozier, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Each and every week, there is an extra segment that we give away to our Patreon supporters. But this week, I'm going to make it available to everyone. So go to OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, click that link at the top right-hand corner of the page that says Patreon, and you can get this week's extra segment free of charge and look and see what it's all about. Perhaps you want to join us in the future and continue to get access to these weekly extra segments. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And here we read, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is this the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the strap of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Then you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That reading comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, as he's speaking about the fast that God truly desires. And just as Father Dozier was telling us earlier, it's the fast that engages the heart, not merely the body. Yes, there are some external bodily things that we do in the fast, but they all point to an interior place where we are more fully connecting with that image of God, as Father mentioned earlier. So let us focus our attention and our heart and our mind on the fast that truly matters, that fast that's not just food, but it's connected deeply with prayer and with almsgiving all together as a singular practice. These three pillars making up this one great Lenten fast. Our reading from church history today comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great on the cross of Christ as the source of all blessings. And as we come into this Holy Week, let us, through our fast, through our prayers, through our almsgiving, ask the Holy Spirit to give us a deeper understanding of what Christ's passion accomplished and what it means for us. And St. Leo says to us, Our understanding, which is enlightened by the Holy Spirit of truth, should receive with purity and freedom of heart the glory of the cross as it shines in heaven and on earth. It should see with inner vision the meaning of the Lord's words when he spoke of the eminence of his passion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Afterward, he said, Now my soul is troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. But it was for this that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your Son. When the voice of the Father came from heaven, saying, I have glorified him and will glorify him again, Jesus said in reply to those around him, It was not for me that this voice spoke, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. How marvelous the power of the cross! How great beyond all telling the glory of the passion! Here is the judgment seat of the Lord, the condemnation of the world, the supremacy of Christ 
crucified. Lord, you drew all things to yourself so that the devotion of all peoples everywhere might celebrate in a sacrament made perfect and visible what was carried out in the one temple of Judea under obscure foreshadowings. Now there is a more distinguished order of Levites, a greater dignity for the rank of elders, a more sacred anointing for the priesthood, because your cross is the source of all blessings, the cause of all graces. Through the cross, the faithful receive strength from weakness, glory from dishonor, life from death. The different sacrifices of animals are no more, The one offering of your body and blood is the fulfillment of all the different sacrificial offerings. For you are the true Lamb of God. You take away the sins of the world. In yourself you bring to perfection all mysteries, so that as there is one sacrifice in place of all other sacrificial offerings, there is also one kingdom gathered from all peoples. Dearly beloved, let us then acknowledge what St. Paul, the teacher of the nations, acknowledged so exultantly. This is a saying worthy of trust, worthy of complete acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. God's compassion for us is all the more wonderful because Christ died not for the righteous or the holy, but for the wicked and the sinful. And though the divine nature could not be touched by the sting of death, he took to himself, through his birth as one of us, something he could offer on our behalf. The power of his death once confronted our death. In the words of Hosea the prophet, Death, I shall be your death. Grave, I shall swallow you up. By dying, He submitted to the laws of the underworld. By rising again, he destroyed them. He did away with the everlasting character of death so as to make death a thing of time, not of eternity. As all die in Adam, so all will be brought to life in Christ. That reading comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great and serves as a lovely introduction for us as we enter into Holy Week to get a sense and to grasp and to wrap our minds around the fullness of what Christ's passion means for us. So that when we come to Easter, not all that far off now, we may rejoice all the more fully in the glory of God so that our Lenten fast, whatever it's looked like up to this point, would be brought into a fullness and into a place of rejoicing that we, through Christ, will share in his resurrection and share in his nature. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Today's show is brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. Listen to this week's free extra segment. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.